Welcome once more at this beautiful evening. Um, so my name is Jacques Ferdin, and I'm the director of Inside Out, which is an, uh, a nonprofit organization that works in prisons, uh, primarily in San Quentin, but uh, we're also uh, with a program I started called Inside Prison Project in 12 other prisons with a restorative justice program that creates dialogues between victims and offenders. So I've worked in San Quentin for about, can you hear me? Yeah. All right, we're working on it. But that's good, don't be polite. You know, don't go home not having heard it. So wave your hand if, at any point. Um, so the Inside Prison Project is an organization I started and ran for about 15 years. And, uh, and so it's alive and well. It has legs and uh, does a lot of beautiful work with uh, victim-offender dialogues. And so tonight I'm here and also some guests. I'm going to talk for about 15 minutes and then... There's a few former prisoners here, and there's also uh, a, a survivor here of a crime. And we're going to share what we've learned with you uh, about bringing this practice, mindfulness, um, into places where people don't usually have access to it very easily. So that's the goal for tonight. And then we'll do some question and answers as well. So we've got a full program. Um, the program I run at the moment is called GRIP. It means Guiding Rage into Power. It's a year-long program, 52 weeks. And we uh, study how to stop our violence, how to cultivate mindfulness, develop emotional intelligence, and understand victim impact. And uh, I do it primarily with life-sensed men, men that have been in prison for... Uh, couple of decades most of the time, and who have committed severe crimes. For example, my Friday group, group has 34 guys in it, and uh, we added up the amount of time they'd served, and we came to uh, 936 years. So that's their time and commitment offense, that's any county jail or juvies altogether. So, we create a learning community, and this learning community is called the tribe. So the tribe then is called after the amount of years served. So this is 936. So at the end of the class, we stand in a circle, we raise our hands and say, 936, for us, by us, about us. Huh. <laughs> I particularly like the huh, because the guys can really say it. So that's the name of the group. And... Um, the next thing we do when we start is we um, tally up how many people died during these crimes. And so we came to 30. And 26 guys were under the influence of drugs when they did this. And then the, the last tabulation is of how long were you in the moment that we call the moment of imminent danger. You know, the moment where you cross the boundary and commit your crime. Sometimes that's five seconds, sometimes that's a couple of minutes. So we added it all up and we came to an hour, 40 minutes and 12 seconds. So we have 936 years and an hour, 40 minutes and 12 seconds. <coughs> Got kind of quiet in the room for a little bit. And so this moment of imminent danger is the moment between Anger and violence. It's also the moment between craving and using. It's a small window, and the job is to ID it, which is the abbreviation, the acronym, ID. And um, there's three characteristics in it. And those of you in long-term relationships also know what I'm saying here. Um, everything speeds up. Everything gets way more intense. And there's usually a moment of regret afterwards. So, um, 
we understand that sorrow is suffering that has not been restored and begs to be addressed. And we also understand if that sorrow is not addressed on a societal level, you can call it malaise, you know, you can call that the alienation the, 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 that is present in, in our society, the large degree of alienation out of which a lot of these mass murders, these massacres that we experience, right, every two, three weeks now almost, there's something. Um, So what we learn, amongst other things in the, in, the, in the group, is that what we call sitting in the fire. You know, the beautiful thing about the mindfulness practice is, is that it's an exploration of identity on some level. And as you begin to, to detach more, you uh, begin to dissolve some of these problems. Whereas the solving is more the psychotherapy therapeutic part, and, you know, they're both important, but by learning how to tolerate intense sensations and learning how to uh, face and deal instead of, and we say that, you know, four strategies in life, you can run, you can hide, you can fight, or you can face. And a lot of us in our younger years, particularly in Quinn, went through various combinations of the first three, but now we're learning how to face. And so they do an inventory of what's called original pain. You know, the kind of pain that left an imprint, trauma, another word for it. That unless you begin to address those wounds, then uh, a secondary pain and a larger karmic cycle happens as a result of not addressing these wounds. And, and secondary pain is basically the pain caused by avoiding original pain. And so we make this inventory, and it's brutally honest. You know, the guys really, we work very hard on creating a safe container, and when we're there, uh, the guys really use it. So the essence of sitting in the fire for us is to understand that the causes and the condition of this feeling, say it's fear or grief, lie within me. By, my virtue, by virtue of my ability to respond to this feeling. And so there's one inmate who likes to speak about uh, something he read in Viktor Frankl's little book called The Search for Meaning where he speaks about the last human freedom, where he says, you know, they can take anything away from you. They can take anything away from you except one thing, which is your ability to respond to any situation, no matter what. And so we, we talk about that in the meditation, too. We say, okay, they got your body in here, they got your movement, but they don't have your spirit. But are you in touch with it? Are you cultivating that connection? So it's, uh, you know, it's, it's more than uh, a spiritual pursuit. It's a very practical reality for these men because the other way it's practical is that it's the difference between having a reaction or having a response. You know, so it's like a decision-making process you learn through the mindfulness. And uh, that happened, so we joke about it and say, well, that's the mother of all interventions right there. Because it's the difference between committing a crime or not. Can you see that? If you have that ability to distinguish between a response and a reaction, you're, you're on your way. So... These men go through the program, and, and the goal is to graduate from being an offender into being a servant. And there's a, a, a graduation party in which the community is invited at the end, and, and the Sanguine Choir sings, and they know how to break the house down. <laughs> and we give back to the community a, a, a group of men that are safe. That's our gift. And that's a big deal right now. 
we say that these men are saved, they've done their work, and not only are they saved, they are able to resolve conflict around them. And um, they sign a pledge. We've made a pledge together. It resembles a, a lot of the precepts. Um, but it's really in their words, too. And so they sign it when they study, when, when we begin. And they can make mistakes. However, one of the pledges is that if you make a mistake, you talk about it. So that we can all learn from it, you know. We say this is a classroom, not a courtroom. So we're here to learn from all of our mistakes. They're welcome. And then they sign this pledge at the end, in, in the presence of the community, for life. So that they are peacekeepers at that point. So a little bit about the um, prison industrial complex in this country, for those of you who may not know. One in 107 Americans is in prison, excluding juveniles. Close to 7 million people are under correction in the U.S., under correctional supervision in the U.S. So that's prison, parole, probation. That's one in 34 Americans. One in 28 school-aged children in the U.S. have a parent incarcerated. According to the same study, one out of nine African-American school-aged children have an incarcerated parent. For an African-American male between 18 and 35 years old, one in eight will be incarcerated, meaning that more will go to prison than to go to college. We have about 73 children that have been sentenced from 12, 13, 14-year-old to die in prison in this country. And we have about 500 people in the sunny state of California that um, have been in isolation for 10 years and longer. And, you know, the, the reason I speak about this is that because we're in a trance about this phenomena. You know, the, the idea that what we put behind these walls, you know, whatever we're in denial of, whatever shadow, underbelly, does not affect us is a myth. And so, um, you know, our charge is to roll up our sleeves and go to work in the trenches. And, and we don't do the, the protest activist work. But, we, you know, we do turn out people that <clears throat> can vouch for themselves, can become part of these organizations, and speak truth to power. Uh, and I just want you to know about this, because this is in your community. You know, I, I got started here because in this very spot, because Jack Cornfield some 18 years ago said, I think we should do something for the prisons in our community. And a number of people stood up, and make a long story short, I stuck with it. And so that movement came out of this room. And that prison is in your community. And, um, you know, I know there's been some ideas of developing it, right? But it was here before most of us were here. One of my guys said, what do they want, the ultimate gated community? <laughs> <laughs> I had a shot caller in my class once, you know, uh, meaning um, somebody who uh, is a leader, a leader in a gang uh, from the Crips LA gang. And he sort of sat there like this for a while. Didn't say much. Didn't say much, but um, kept coming. And then uh, we teamed him up with a younger person that he remembered from his neighborhood. So then he came alive, and at one point, he raised his hand, and I said, what? He said, I got it. I said, well, what did you get? He said, hurt people hurt people. He said, and I know because, you know, I acted out. I lashed out from pain that I'm starting to get in touch with. Then his apprentice raised his hand, which, you know, big guy, Brother G, was there for domestic violence. And uh, he said, I got something too. I said, well, what did you get? 
He said, healed people heal people. He said, because this brother here is teaching me. You know. And then both of these men wept. And so did the rest of us. So that in eight words describes what we do. A couple of other things we're learning briefly because I want to get the guests in. We're learning that being human is having entered the contract to learn how to listen. That learning to listen, as Paul Tillich said, is the first duty of love. We're learning that in healing, every wound is also a movement that cuts you open. And that if you don't show up for the pain of the cut, you won't get the blessing that comes through the opening either. We learn that being free is not just a geographical fact. It's not just the other side of the gate. At the heart of being free is not knowing where you are, when it's not knowing where you are, but questioning who you are and not ever forgetting, forgetting to do that again as you did in committing your crime. We're learning to say thank you to accept each person and situation as our teacher, and that this moment is all there is. And if it's all there is, then I'm sentenced only to my mind. We're learning that every person and every situation is my teacher. So there's a lot more to say, uh, but I'm going to park it and ask uh, some of our guests to come up here with me. So why talk about them if they can speak directly to you? So, Dominique, Dave, Jenny. So first, Jenny is going to speak, and she will also explain as to why there's a camera here. And it's all yours, Jenny. Thank you, Jacques. Um, that was really beautiful, and I'm really touched by the work that the Insight Out program is doing at San Quentin, and I have had the privilege and the honor of going in and working with some of these men and Jacques. And, um, my name is Jenny Lyon, and I'm here to speak to you tonight, um, just as I do with Jacques Guys, as a representative of the surviving victims of crimes. And uh, it's an epidemic in our country, violence. And um, I suffered in my own family um, a terrible, terrible violent loss uh, when I was relatively young, about 20 years ago. And um, I came from a pretty normal family. Uh, I was an army brat. My dad was a dentist in the army because he was a pacifist and um, a yogi and a spiritual seeker. And he wanted to serve his country, but he wanted to do it without ever having to hurt anyone. So he became a dentist. And my mom was a stay-at-home mom. <laughs> and uh, she took really good care of us. And we were a very, very happy family growing up. But when I was a teenager, my dad retired, and um, my mom decided to divorce him. And during those years, they had a terrible, bitter divorce. Um, a lot of kids go through awful divorces, and we were coping the best we could, um, not realizing that the things that were happening in our home were not okay. Um, there, was, there was some violence in our home, and um, it was never that awful, a lot of it was emotional. Um, but unfortunately, we found out that my mom was struggling with some real mental health issues. And uh, nobody knew how bad they were until it was a little too late. And she um, was being treated with Prozac and, and had been diagnosed with depression. And unfortunately, that was a misdiagnosis. And this was before, right before, news started breaking that people on Prozac could do uncharacteristically violent things. 
And so one night when I was 17, I got a phone call um, to go to the hospital that my dad was in the hospital and they wouldn't tell us why. And I got to the hospital and I found out that um, my father was being treated for stab wounds. And thank you. We really weren't sure that night if he was gonna survive. And I also found out that my mom did not survive. She had attacked my dad and she didn't make it. So put one hand here on your heart and put one on your belly. This is how we do it in the prison too. This is your fear, this is your heart. And just take a moment, breathe into that. This too can be felt. In the 20 years since that Thank night, I have focused on healing. It uh, has been a long conscious process, growing in consciousness, I should say, because when something that dramatic happens, you ask big questions. <laughs> and uh, I had to turn inward for peace. That was the only place I could find it in my life. And it was there for me. So my mindfulness practice has been my grounding, and it's been the ground from which I can heal. And as I'm finding out, just as Jacques' guys have found out, healed people can heal people. And that's why the film equipment is here tonight, is because part of my journey is, uh, as a filmmaker, to share my story, to share other stories of survivors. It's not just about surviving. It's about helping each other heal because our whole society is suffering. There was an element of shame wrapped up in our mother's mental illness. We couldn't admit it to each other, never mind our bigger family, never mind our community. That's happening with a lot of these people doing the school shootings. They're suffering terribly inside. So we must shine some light on these places of shame. And what I'm discovering is that when I have the courage to open my heart, and to tell people what I've been through. I was terrified that people would judge me. I was terrified that people would shame me for coming from such a messed up family. And the opposite is true. I find that it gives other people the power to feel their own compassion, the power to feel their own love and, and desire for healing in our world and our communities. So I don't want to keep my story to myself. I want to shine some light on what every person who is in prison has hurt a family the way my family was hurt. Every person who has lost someone, as Jacques said, that, that sorrow is from an unaddressed, unfaced wound. When we face our wounds, we can heal our wounds. And the tools that we get from a mindful meditation practice um, they give you the foundation to face anything. From there, you can sob, you can feel the depth of the love underneath all the pain. And you grow stronger for feeling it, not weaker. You grow stronger with every tear you let fall. You have the power to help heal others and yourself and to realize our unity in our community and that when we face these things, when we heal these things, then we can, that prevents crime. That teaches people to, to find their stillness inside so that they no longer react with violence. They can react from a conscious place. They can respond to the situation differently. And, um, so to take the stigma out of being the family of an incarcerated person because all those two and a half million people in prison in America and the others that are on probation, millions and millions, they all have families. And I also feel the, the sadness and the stigma of knowing that my dad is incarcerated and people would think, I thought people would think badly of me, but more and more I reach out and they say, well, my cousin's in prison or my uncle's in prison or my dad's in prison too. And 
wow, it's so great that you're talking about this. We do, we need to address this. We can't just throw people away and think that's any kind of a solution. Everyone has a contribution to make to society. And I choose to make mine about healing and about compassion and about facing our problems, not shaming them into silence any longer. So, blessings on your path, because every one of you here is turning inward for peace, inward for guidance. And from that space, we can come forward, we can meet, we can connect with other people that care about these important issues to our communities. Thank you. He was convicted of killing my mother. Um, that was where the injustice started. Um, I, the question was, why is my father in prison? And he, um, the wheels of injustice started spinning as soon as my mother died. Um, the police thought someone should pay for that, that that was a crime, and they did not seek the truth. They sought a conviction. The truth being that he was defending himself, yes. And now I'd like to introduce my new friend, Dee Whitaker. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you, first of all, for coming. Thank you, Spirit Rock, for giving us this venue to express our... A little closer. Excuse me. And thank you for giving me this opportunity to express our sorrows. First of all, I'd like to say I apologize for anybody out there that's been a victim of violence. No one should have to go through some of the things that some of us have committed. Um, I spent the last 18 years of my life in San Quentin under the three strikes law. I was arrested for not turning a rental car that I had. I didn't turn it back in time, which I had intended, intended to turn it back in time. So I was served, I was given 20, I mean 25 years of life under the three strike law. So I think anybody that voted for Prop 36, please, I'm very grateful to everybody that voted for that. But along my way, this journey, I'm grateful for the things that happened to me, even though the situation, the road that I traveled was a rough one. But if, it, if I hadn't traveled that road, I wouldn't be who I am today. And like you said, I'm, I'm a graduate of the GRIP program in San Quentin, guiding rage into power. And I learned how to, from not being a victim anymore and learning to be a server. I was in a similar situation as she was. I was around domestic violence as a kid growing up. My mother and father would fight, even though they, were, they had professional careers, no one knew what happened inside my household. It's something that no one talked about, you know, so. For, my, for many years, I didn't know why I was so angry, but I was angry at my parents, because of the shame that came along with it. And also, we had mental Ill illness in my family that no one talked about. So along my way from committing crimes, not that I judge, I, well, I put it this way, because of my background, I don't say, you know, that's the reason why I went to jail or prison or rehab. Those were bad decisions I made along the way. But they were also impacted by my childhood that I didn't make the proper decisions as an adult. So as I spent a, in and out of, of prisons, I ended up going to San Quentin for the last five years. And while I was there, I was diagnosed with uh, multi-myeloma cancer, stage three. and. Um, it was kind of rough at first, but also it was, a, it was a light bulb moment for me because I had to realize, well, damn, I don't got that many years left according to the doctor, so what am I going to do? You know? So I started joining these groups like GRIP, Mindful Meditation, and I found my calling. You know, it, was, it came at a time I really didn't think so. It would happen for me because the doctor told me I only had like probably two more years to live, and that was like in 2008, and this is what, 2013? <laughs> And since that time, I've ran several marathons, and I'm still alive, <laughs> so I'm proud of that. But along the way, like I said, if God would have told me this is the road I would have to travel to be who I am today, I'd say, I'm cool. I don't want to go. I don't want to go. But one thing I'm grateful for is like the programs that we have at San Quentin. Unfortunately, they're not everywhere in all the state prisons, because these were better ways that your tax dollars could be spent instead of incarcerating us at an alarming rate and considering this garbage, we're not worth it anymore. And I'm one of the few guys that were there that wasn't in for a violent crime for murdering anybody. But the guys that I was around with that had committed murder, if you really had got to know these guys, 
you'd be proud of them. You really would. And considering what they've been through as their childhood. Because I'd say eight out of ten of us had some kind of domestic violence in their lives. And we didn't have prominent role models to follow. So we learned from the streets. And unfortunately, in the African-American community, there's not enough role models there to teach us the right way to go. So we learn what we know best from the people around us. And we end up making bad decisions and committing crimes. You know, like, like they say, hurt people hurt people and heal people heal people. So through these groups that I've been in, they've been my, they were my family members. I'm originally from New York, so I had no family members. I didn't only visit only once a year. And my brother here and a few other brothers that I graduate, they were my family members. They helped me through very rough times. Anybody that's been through cancer, you know how chemo can do you. It's outrageous. There was times when I was so sick that I couldn't get up. I didn't eat. All these guys would come out. If I ran too much, they were, hey, Whitaker, you know you ain't supposed to be out there running in the rain. But that's what kept me alive, you know. So mm -hmm. these guys have always been my family members. I love them to death. And Jack, God, you've been a lifesaver. And I also like to thank one other person that's in the crowd here, Paul. It's Bill Rock, because you helped make this happen as far as getting everything filmed and everything. Thank you very much, brother. But I just wanted to give you guys a brief synopsis of my life history. But now I'm a graduate of GRIP. I'm a server. I'm out here doing my best. And I told my brothers when I left that this is what I would do. I would spread the message so people would know. And I plan to continue that. Thank you for your time. My name is Dave. Uh, I really was confused on what I wanted to say here tonight because uh, I'm not one to get up in front of a bunch of people and, and talk about personal things. But, you know, I had a problem of pain. You know, it was emotional pain. I walked around my entire life and I wondered where was the group of people like this where I could say, hey, why don't somebody do something? I never understood why I hurt every day of my life. I contemplated suicide at seven years old. I went on to become an alcoholic and a drug addict, earned myself a three-strike sentence in prison. I spent 19 years in there. And it's through programs like this, this mindful meditation especially, it got me in tune with my heart and my mind. It put it together, everything become in sync. It just, all the chaos was gone. Uh, I can't say uh, that I'll ever stop hurting, but the pain is easier to face and deal with today. I don't need drugs. I don't need any alcohol and chaos in my life. It's, it's, it's just not there. But these people, and the meditation, especially mindfulness, it's, it's, it's incredible because you become aware of your pain. The hurt people hurt people. That thing, it resonated through me when I heard that term, you know, hurt people hurt people. I didn't pay much attention to heal people heal people, but the hurt people hurt people. <laughs> because I suddenly realized that my parents hurt me real bad. My parents destroyed my life. And I wondered who destroyed theirs. And now I look at my children, they're in their 40s, and they're destroying their children too. So I see it, I see it hurt people, hurt people. And now it's, it's coming to light, you know. I'm a healed person. So healed people will heal people. I reach out, I try to touch my kids. I try to touch people who are hurting. And, uh, well, it's almost to the point now where I'm, becoming, I'm called a preacher. <laughs> you know, people don't want me preaching. They say there's a Jehovah's Witness knocking at their door. But, uh, you know, I'm just trying to help. <laughs> I want to be out here and say, well, here I am. <laughs> but uh, it's just something that, that when people come into prisons and they realize that there's too many people in prison and they want to do something. You know, everybody in that prison has suffered something even before they offended, you know. And look what they've done 
with the pain that they were feeling, what they have caused in others' lives, how many victims are out there. It's, it's an awful number. And it's, you know, something has to be done. Jock mentioned the restorative justice thing, sitting in the fire. It's, it's something. When you can sit in front of a group of people and, and, and read, I, my brother passed away. Uh, and I wrote, he took, Jock here asked me to write a letter to my brother. I didn't know what he wanted to write it for. I thought he just wanted me to write it to get it off my mind. So I wrote this letter. And he wanted me to read it in front of the class. Oh, well, that was awful deep stuff, you know. Well, I read it in front of the class, and I lost it, man. I started crying, and he says, just everybody grab here like this, and I did. I felt like I was being caressed. I felt like I was being loved. Even though it was my hands on me, it was better than none at all. <laughs> it felt good. It really did. I still have that letter. You know, it's in my box of papers, along with every other paper I got out of that class. I'll never throw them away. Uh, how much time I got? You Am I really short? <laughs> Come on, boss. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, anyway, just before I paroled, the group of guys here held onto this little black rock tightly in their hands and talked about how they met me and what their relationship with me has been and wishing me well. And they all gave it to me, you know? It's my consciousness rock. I carry it everywhere I go. I don't care except for the shower, you know. <laughs> but uh, I went down to the courthouse to get my records so I can give it to the parole officer. And the court, the cops in there searching everybody going through metal detectors. I empty my pocket and I throw a rock out there. He says, you can't take a rock into court. I said, that's my consciousness rock. He says, you're not taking that into court. So I took it outside and hit it with a bunch of other rocks and he was happy for a little while. <laughs> but uh, he's back in my pocket where he belongs. <laughs> but it was a great thing. Uh, Prison isn't great for anybody, but I'll tell you something, it changed my life. I would have been dead if it hadn't have been for them 19 years I spent in prison. I'm not thankful that I went to prison. I'm not thankful that I ever did anything wrong. I've hurt a lot of people, but I'll tell you what, I'm sure grateful that I have been able to change my life. And it's through programs like GRIP, mindful meditation, that's responsible for the change that I've made. Because I, I never thought there was an answer. You know, like I said, I was looking for a group like you guys and say, hey, why don't somebody do something? I'm hurting. But I couldn't do that. I couldn't find that group. I didn't know where y'all were. <laughs> I never heard of Marin County until I got put in San Quentin. <laughs> it's awful nice to be here. I've never seen such beautiful country in my life. This is a beautiful area. I'd give anything to live over here. That little town over here, Fairfax, I'm in love with the little coffee shop over there. Yeah, I got to come back here. And you go across the street downtown here, they stop. Not where I come from. Not where I come from. But they stop here. They let you go. They come on. But anyway, thanks for your time and bless you all. See, Dave wasn't going to be here, but he's on Facebook now. <laughs> and he saw that this event was on. <laughs> so I said, you might as well come up here with us. So thanks for being here, Dave. Yeah, thank you. Um, <clears throat> Here's a quote from Rilke. He says, perhaps, perhaps everything terrible is in its deepest being something helpless that wants our love, that wants our care. Perhaps everything terrible is in its deepest being, something helpless, that wants our love, that wants our care. So, you know, we have the technology, meaning the, 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 the programs, and we can change. The one institution in our culture that is lagging behind, as, as if it's still in the Middle Ages, our prisons. And so, you know, I'm making that call out there for whoever is ready to hear it. 
to uh, to assist in that effort because uh, you know one in twenty eight children that those are our children you know whether they live a stone's throw away across the Richmond Bridge here or not so um, we wanted to open it for actually um, let me read a little letter from one of those kids okay. This, the letter had a lot to do with why I started doing what I was doing. It's a nine-year-old who's writing to her father who's in prison. He got it around Father's Day. And uh, she lives with her sister and her mom. And the prisoner would write her older sister and uh, her mom thinking she couldn't read or write yet. So she's putting them straight on that in this letter. And <laughs> while she's at it, she's putting them straight on a couple of other things. She's struggling with addiction. Dear Dad, Hello, Daddy. You wrote Mom and Erica. You always forget me. I can read and write. I received a B in English and computer language. I'm going to grade four. I sung at two schools in my school, too. Mom really is trying to let me go to voice lessons in art school, but it is so high. Maybe one day you can help. I asked Mom, why do you go to jail so much? But she won't give me no answer. She just said, he had to, that's why. Daddy, there's no reason. Can you tell me what's wrong with you going in and out so much? It makes me feel pretty sad when you're gone. And sometimes you're not around on holidays like Christmas, I missed you. When you seen us, you was not happy to see us. You was looking mad and you did not but us no nothing, no picture, no card. That's sad. And last time I seen you, you looked so bad. When will you ever stay home for good? You never stay with us. I want you to stay with Erica, Mommy, and me. Mom said you're getting out soon. What are you going to stay? What will you wear? Will you have food? I have $12 Mom gave me. I saved it for you, Daddy. I miss you. Come out and stay out. We miss you too much. The man around this place looks spooky. We need you here with us. No more drugs, Daddy. I wish I could blow the truck drugs. Come on. So many kids don't have moms or dads at my school because of drugs. We have class teaching us about guns and drugs, and they both kill, and that's not good. Please call us later. I love you, Dina. So we'll take some questions from anybody. And, uh, and we have a mic here, right? Yeah. There's somebody way in the back that I saw. Yeah. And uh, please ask us who you want to answer the questions. Did I say that? Who was it? Please make clear who you want your question answered by. Um, I, I don't mind who answers the question, but I just wanted to say what is being done to help people before they get into prison? You know, before the things happen, all these children and suffering with all this pain. Well, a couple of the guys said, shit, oh, sh said, um, darn it, I, I wish, <laughs> my, my English is going to pot. <laughs> um, I wish I'd known this, you know, when I was 15. And so I kept hearing it, and I said, let's go tell them. You know, so a couple of the guys are out now, they're called change agents. They go and give back to the same communities they took from, and we're working in a uh, youth center in Richmond. We did a stint, and also here in Nevada High School till, till it ran out of money. But yeah, there is that movement to take what was learned on this side of the pipeline and put it to work on the other side of the pipeline. Over there. I'm a local child and adolescent and family psychologist, and I work with families that at least appear to be relatively high-functioning with a mild to moderate degree of mental health issues. What kind of positive influence can I help have on them to help the cause that 
that mm -hmm. you're doing. Jenny? Um, I think the most important thing for families that are struggling with mental illness, like what I wish that my family had had, um, is to encourage the family to love and include that member rather than to push away from what feels uncomfortable. But when something's uncomfortable, to go there with love and compassion and hold some safe space for that. If you can teach those kinds of skills to their families how to support their, their ill one, um, that can help keep them together and it can help the ill one feel less alienated. And like if there's a, a challenge, they would have their, their family to support them through it. Near the pillar there, Sean. Into where? Into, into the side, this. Hello and welcome into our world. <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, I The word victim doesn't work well for me, but when I was 13 years old, my father was killed by a drunk driver. Mm -hmm. And... I have seen it as an act of violence as well. So it wasn't something that intentional or not intentional, but you know, she was drinking uh, first thing in the morning, intoxicated, argument with her husband, went out, was driving, wasn't going for my father, didn't know him, but took his life instantly, which mm -hmm. took my life mm -hmm. and changed it. Mm -hmm. And I started to work when I was in my teens for Mothers Against Drunk Driving, trying to heal that pain for myself about losing my father. And after doing that, I started to look for her. I just knew early in life that there was a spiritual component to myself. I wanted to tell her that I, forgive, I forgave her. She didn't want to destroy a family. But she really did, unintentionally. Mm -hmm. And so I looked for the information. I contacted the attorney who was part of the case. And I don't know why. Maybe my mother blocked it. Seems like something my mother would have done. But I was given misinformation. So from the time I was about 19 years old until about six months ago, I've been looking for her. Mm -hmm. But they gave me wrong information. And it finally came around about six months ago that they told me the wrong age. They told me the wrong name. Mm -hmm. So I've had to do my own forgiveness work within mm -hmm. myself about her. Mm -hmm. And um, it's unfortunate. I don't know if she's alive. Mm -hmm. I'm still looking for her to tell her, I'm sorry that this happened to mm -hmm. you. Mm -hmm. And I'm sorry that it happened to me. And I hope you mm -hmm. went on to have a good life. Mm -hmm. So I say to all of you that have been to prison, I wish you a good life, no matter how long you've served. Maybe through you, I could say that I forgive you. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's a way that I could feel that about her, wherever mm -hmm. she is in the world. But I forgive you. I forgive all of you. Thank oh, you. Wow. Um, I guess I have two mics now. <laughs> I mean, let's just take a moment of silence. You know, there's, there's silence sometimes is the only eloquent response to offerings like this. So, please. I just want to comment to say that I, I've seen this a lot, you know. With this I mean, just like you have a strong bond when you bring in a child, right? You're a parent. There's a strong bond when you take out a life between the people involved. And it's rather mysterious as to how strong that can be, you know. Um, but it's there. and. It's not for everybody to engage, but for a surprising amount of people it is. And I, I just want to say, um, 
from what I feel, what I experience hearing you, is that you've reached her, and, and, and more than that, you know, for you to say that to these men. Um, good work. Thank you. Anybody else? I'd like to just quickly um, comment on how beautiful and profoundly moving it is that you offer that forgiveness without knowing. I think that's part of the beauty in the restorative justice movement. And it is a movement. It's in its fledgling stages, but it's getting started where we do offer victim-offender mediations as Jacques has helped facilitate to make possible here in California. Um, my family has gone through that process in Texas, and it's profoundly healing to be able to speak with the one who took your loved one um, to complete that circle of forgiveness that you're offering. It's beautiful that you're able to do that on a spiritual plane. I also hear you that it would be very healing for you to be able to do in person. And um, I bless you both on your paths. Thank you for sharing that. Okay, help me out, okay? There's a, uh, somebody there, and there's somebody in the back, too. Okay. okay, there's a person here, too. Okay, thank you. Use your best judgment. <laughs> I'd like to uh, <clears throat> put this idea out, especially to the men in our whole world, that I think it's time that men got together and created a movement like the women did in the 70s and the early, the women's movement, where we let the world know that we really weren't just the way we were being seen or the roles that were being offered to women, that we were so much more than that. And I feel that the reigning values in our country and much of the world, but not all, for men are money, sex and power. Now there's nothing wrong with money, there's nothing wrong with sex, and we all have power. But these are empty values when you leave out the heart. And I see the what is called entertainment in our culture as dangerous for many young boys, the video games which were created by the CIA unfortunately. I'm, I'm really hoping that men get together like you men up there and think the way you have about how to heal all of the pain and all of the push to be macho and powerful. and It's, it's just stealing their hearts away from them and their souls. And I just, mm -hmm. I just really, really pray that the men in our nation come together and say no to some of these terrible roles that they're asked to play and a coldness and a lack of connection with their soul, which is so evident in everybody up, up in front of the room. And, and many of the men here, okay. all of the people here, I'm Let sure. Let me have somebody respond to that. So, uh, so we, should we pass that one on to you, uh, Dean? <laughs> Thank you for your, your question. Uh, I agree with you 100% on that to a certain degree. Because I think because the role models that we have and the stereotypes that we go through, this machoism, that it clouds our judgment. And, and we, make, we make bad decisions behind that. And it definitely has, speaking in the eye, it definitely has caused that for me. And one thing I like about these groups that I, like I was in, GRIP and all them, is that we learn how to address both issues, our feminist side and, and our masculine side, and that grounds us. And once you get grounded like that, then I think you see the world in a whole different perspective, not just from the male side, the capitalistic side, all that. All that's really irrelevant, because if you're not at peace with yourself, you can't be at peace with anybody else. Mm -hmm. So thank you. There's a, a piece that we speak about in the curriculum uh, about the male role belief system which uh, abbreviated is Mr. BS. <laughs> and we go deeply into conditioning, you know, that make men be the men that they think they have to be. And 
That said, I also want to put in a word for males. You know, I, I think we should have a bumper sticker that says, Save the males. <laughs> because, you know, uh, it's hard to be a human being, and it's, it has its own uh, slant when you're a male human being. And, uh, you know, uh, there's a lot of pain in there, under there. So I, I want to keep a tender spot for that as well. Okay, Sean, you're responsible. The, the okay. lady in the back <laughs> raised her hand like two or three times. Okay. <laughs> Blame the local monk, right? Hi, welcome. So I didn't have a question, but um, I wanted to thank you from the bottom of my heart. I'm a, a rape survivor. I was raped at knife point when I was 19. And I thought I'd done a lot of healing around it, and I guess I hadn't actually gotten to that forgiveness place mm -hmm. because I think I hadn't quite thought about it. Mm -hmm. And when I heard you start talking, all of you, um, my heart just kind of mm -hmm. broke open more mm -hmm. and I've been crying since then. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. My only brother killed himself with alcohol after mm -hmm. many stints in prison. And there's a lot of mental illness in my family. Um, mm -hmm. And so I honor the work that you're doing and if there's any way that I can be mm -hmm. a part of that or help to that, um, I'm here. Thank mm -hmm. you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You know, when we've done presentations like this, this is invariably what happens. And if it's a long enough presentation, it sort of becomes a community clinic. <laughs> no, and I'm saying that without a smile. And so what we've done is we've put a dialogue together at Sati Center in Redwood City on the 20th of July, where in the morning we learn some of the practices that we've learned in prison. One of them is Q-tip, quit taking it personal. Uh, and then in the afternoon, we have a healing ritual because one in five Californians has suffered a crime. And uh, uh, violence is much more than uh, physical boundaries being crossed, you know. When we have mind over sentience, as we have it in the Western technological world, there's violence. It, it, it allows us to rationalize polluting the planet, going to war, suppressing ethnicities, etc. And so this practice has mind-serving sentience, right? And that's our notion of looking at violence through that lens. And so we're putting a healing ritual together because um, we want to reframe what prisoners are and what prisons are and create resources out of places where never anybody looked for them. So anybody who's touched on that level and, and, and can't speak out tonight but understands that you know, there's echoes that need to be dealt with, you're, you're most welcome to that event. Dave, do you have any response on well. echoes of pain? <clears throat> A response to what she said. Yeah. All I want to say is, uh, I'll, I want to thank you for your forgiveness, and I feel that there's a unity here, and and I think it comes from a a consciousness that we all that we're we're all sharing in here together, and uh, it's like that rock I got in my pocket, you know. To me, everything in the universe is connected. Everything. The water, the air, us, the grass, everything. We're, we're quantumly connected. We're, we're all part of the same thing. We're all united. We are all connected. And when there's offenders and victims and, and crimes, and it, it's, it's, none of that is good. None of that is good. And we can all work together and change that. We really can. And it's by getting people together like this, that's where it starts. This is a big group of people right here. I'm, su I'm surprised that there's this many people here that, that have an interest in this because this is important stuff. To get into a prison and change people's lives and give them some direction so we can knock down that number of victims. We can stop the violence. We can stop the, the stop the drug addiction. 
we can do all we can do all those things. And what it takes is groups like this. It's a little understanding, a little love. Thank you. Where did you get that quantum bit? Hey, from you. <laughs> I read your book. What's it, what's it called? The quantum squat. All right. All right. Hello. I just wanted to ask if there is a program like this for women in prison. Mm -hmm. uh, the victim offender education program is in Chowchilla in the women's prison. Uh, it's not exactly this program. It, its main focus is on that victim-offender healing relationship. But uh, it's there. Yeah. And, you know, when I say it's there, like, we, we currently have 228 people on a waiting list, right? So there's a long ways to go. There's over $10 billion spent in the 2011 budget, which is the last one we have numbers on. And less than a quarter percent went to programs. Okay. And so that bell needs to be rung. That bell needs to be rung. And, and of those programs, we didn't get any of it. Which is good, because then they would have taken it also. But, um, yeah, there's, there's a wake-up call there. I want to thank you for being here tonight and tell you I'm just completely humbled by your courage uh, and your bravery to come here and speak to groups and to meet the demons of your life and um, love yourselves in the way that you have. Um, I have spent some of my life working with parents and children and um, I'm just struck by um, how many, you know, how easy it is to become a parent. <laughs> um, there's no requirements out there. Um, there's nothing you have to sign. And, um, I, you know, I've worked in communities where there are a lot of resources, and I've worked in communities where there aren't as many. Um, and I'm just aware how challenging, how challenging it is to actually come in contact with parents who really need support. You know, how I've thought... We know the school system is really one of the only ways I can imagine to access parents because every kid has to go to school. Um, but I've thought about setting up tables at grocery stores, you know, or like where could I come in contact with parents who really need support, like who mm -hmm. really need support. Um, mm -hmm. And I just wondered if, if either any of you, both of you, either of you, any of you have any thoughts about, you know, what would have impacted you at the point at which you were a parent when you really needed support or... Um, you know, because you've, you've aged, you've got wisdom, you've had a lot of life experience behind you. Would, is there something someone could have said to you at some point when you were a young parent that would have really impacted you and made a difference yeah. going forward in your lives? Great question. That's a tough question. Unfortunately, we don't have come with a book on how to be a parent or how you live your life. Um, actually, I think in my case... I think if my parents would have spoke to us and told us about the pressures that they were going through, raising us, and, and if they talked to each other, my parents didn't communicate well with each other. And it's an unfortunate trait that I end up repeating the same cycle, not talking to my kids. Unfortunately for me, that my kids haven't come to prison, but that's mostly graceful because of their moms, that, that they didn't. But I think if there had been communications in my family where we all sat around and talked and didn't hide things from each other, I think it would have made a big difference, especially about the mental health and domestic violence. All these things were taboo. You don't speak about those things, you know. And problems that you don't talk about fester, you know. And over years, they festered, and I acted out, not knowing why I was acting out. But all these things that happened to me affected my decisions that cost me. You know, I spent altogether about 23 years of my life in prisons. I've had multiple attempted suicides, 
rehabs to no avail. And finally, the light came on and said, there has to be a greater purpose to living. And then I thought about this. Well, God keeps letting me survive this. There must be something he wants me to do. <laughs> you know, every morning when I wake up, first, as soon as my feet hit the ground, I say, I'm thankful because I'm alive today. Even though the doctors told me I wouldn't live, I've been in some tragic car accidents. I've been in some, some really violent riots in prisons and double fours as part of survival in those kind of conditions. And I have to wake up and be grateful. And then it's grateful. What really makes me also grateful is that I know there's people out there that care. And before, I didn't think other people cared, and especially, and not to be racist, but say, I didn't think any white American cared about me. <laughs> Being realistic, you know? And then when I'm seeing that how many people that really do care, it makes a big difference. I've only been out like three weeks now and you cannot believe how many people have came to help me. You know, I got a new computer. I have money in my pocket that I don't go spin. And then what, I'm gonna make this real brief up. My niece called me the other day, two days ago, and she was like, hey, Uncle D, uh, I was gonna go to this party, but I don't have the money to get a dress. So I said, you know what? I'll call you back in 15 minutes. And I ran around the corner to Western Union and wired $100. And then I called her back. She said, you know, some people called me from Western Tell me I had $100 there. I said, yeah, that's for you. And she said, wow, Uncle D, you're back. So I'm glad to be back. And I'm glad there's people here that care. Thank you. Okay. So we're out of time. Again, there, there's flyers about that day long on the, on the back table. And the, uh, I'll leave some cards here if... You know, it's a bit of a miracle how we continue to exist. And, and if you know of anybody or perhaps yourself, you'll move to support it. Your, your dollar will go a long way. So thank you very much. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.